this is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Kate is sent to Moscow in 1985 to write articles for the Morning Star, a left-wing British daily newspaper founded in 1930 as the Daily Worker by the Communist Party of Great Britain. Kate is the author of Twilight of the Soviet Union, memoirs of a Moscow correspondent. She lives in a block of flats alongside Soviet citizens and enrolls her three children in Soviet schools. Three weeks after Kate arrives, Mikhail Gorbachev comes to power and she finds herself having to cover the disorientating number of rapid reforms and attacks on the Soviet system by its leadership for a newspaper that had always supported the Soviet Union. Kate is fluent in Russian, speaks with Soviet citizens on the bus or at the shops and visits every Soviet republic bar one in the then largest country on earth. In 1986, she reported on the Chernobyl disaster and was one of the first journalists to arrive in the area. I'm delighted to welcome Kate Clark to our Cold War conversation. Well, I was um, basically a, a linguist. Um, I graduated in Russian studies in the 60s. I thought that that would be the best subject rather than French or German, which I'd also done, uh, to, to, to get a job because those were the years of detente. You know, there were a lot more trade opportunities between the Soviet Union and Britain. So I thought it would be a good thing to study. And um, then I worked for ICI, which is a big, was a big chemical com- company. Um, and uh, during that time, the scientists there because uh, I was working at the Central Research Laboratory, um, decided that they'd like to learn Russian. So they asked me if I would teach. And I realized that I liked teaching more than the other work that I was doing at ICI. So I left and went into teaching. And then I was conscious that my Russian degree, although it was very deep in lots of areas, you know, we studied uh, Russian institutions, Soviet institutions, Soviet history, Russian history, old church, Slavonic, old Russian, all those sort of subjects. I did not feel that I had a good command of everyday spoken Russian. So I decided to try and go to Russia. At that time, at that time in the in the early 60s, there were no kind of uh, agreements between universities which would enable you to spend a year or a term in the country of your chosen language. Uh, so that's why I had to try and organize something myself. And uh, I went on a scholarship, uh, which was for future teachers of Russian. And we studied at Moscow State University. That's one of those buildings that's like a wedding cake structure. And um, there, during that year, I really learned how to speak Russian. And <laughs> you know, not just the, the, the history of the language and so on, but because of the, the very first time I went to the Soviet Union, I got to the station. I'd gone by train so that it would be cheaper because I was still a student at that time. I got to the train station and, and realized that I didn't really know how to say in Russian, you know, to the taxi driver, please take me to to so-and-so. I I was really acutely conscious of how poor my spoken Russian was. But anyway, during that year, in uh, 1967-68, I uh, learned to speak the language well and made some 
with Soviet friends. I also uh, met my future husband, who is Chilean. And um, I ended up uh, going to Chile because <laughs> we fell in love and I, I really couldn't envisage a future without him and he likewise. So uh, in 1969, I went to Chile uh, and we lived there for several years. And uh, I seem to have this knack of of, of going to places and then everything changed. Uh, and, um, I no sooner got to Chile in March 1969 than Allende, Salvador Allende, who was the first um, sort of socialist president that Chile had ever had, was elected in September 1970. And uh, so I was able to uh, live the next three years uh, reporting, well, observing and participating in all the events of the Popular Unity Government under Salvador Allende until his death when the military coup happened in September 1973, uh, when my husband was imprisoned and uh, I had a bit of a rough time as well. But during those years, when Allende was uh, uh, president, I started writing simply because um, the, 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 the Daily Worker, as it was then, I think, um, asked me if I as I was a, an English communist at the time, whether I could write a few articles. And, I, and during those three years, I did write, not very often, but I wrote a few articles. So that was my introduction into journalism, let's say. You successfully apply to a job advert for the Moscow correspondent of the Morning Star, and you arrive in Moscow in 1985. You're there with Ricardo and your three children. How different was Moscow in 1985 to when you were there in the late 60s? Well, I think there was a, a noticeable difference. Uh, in the 60s, um, well, who knows whether one is coloured by uh, just the, the, the lovely student atmosphere and the, and the ease with which we made friendships with lots of Soviet people, Soviet students at that time postgrads and so on uh, but there seemed to be an atmosphere of optimism um, people were looking to the future with optimism and uh, were I would say pretty confident in their system and, and enjoying life in the 80s by the time well we did go for a short month-long course in 1981 I think because I was teaching Russian at the time at the Society for Cultural Relations, as it was called then, the Society for Cultural Relations with the USSR. I was teaching, I taught for a couple of years there, just part-time. And so I was. I went on a, a course for teachers of Russian just for a month in 81. I think it was 81. And um, I realised then that the mood was quite different. You know, that there were people with quite grim, grim faces walking the streets and people with... Uh, string shopping bags uh and then again when we went there with the children obviously i saw that there were indeed uh, quite serious problems with shortages in the shops and um but you sort of we sort of managed to get round it we ricardo always traveled with a string bag in his pocket and so so did i and if you just wherever you were going, where if you were going to a factory to interview somebody or you were going to the press centre or, and in his case, whether he was going to his work, you just called in here and there at shops that you were on, on your route and uh, 
you know, it wasn't that difficult, really. Plus the fact that all Soviet people at that time had a weekly order through their work, through their place of work. So Ricardo had that right, and I had that right as well. And uh, so we, we had one weekly order each uh, that was delivered to the house, which contained, um, well, it could be meat, it could be tinned fish, it could be uh, about 15 items, you know, sweet things, cakes, uh, rice, all the staples, eggs and so on. All that could be delivered in a weekly order. So we we sort of managed. Your, your position was different to the other British journalists in Moscow in so much that you're actually living alongside Soviet citizens. You're not in some separate yes. um, block of flats or anything like that. It was a, um, a wonderful thing for us, and it was something that I... Well, I didn't even know that there were separate buildings um, for most of the, the correspondents. Um, but in our case, yes, we lived amongst Soviet people. It was a Soviet block of flats. Um, and we made friends with our neighbours, uh, our immediate neighbours, and we became friends with, uh, well, our daughters became friends with a girl who was um, the daughter of uh, a Kalmyk a uh, man from Kalmykia, which is uh, in the Caucasus. It's not a separate republic. It's an autonomous republic in the Caucasus. So they have their own language and their own customs. And uh, they, I think uh, their religion, if anything, it's Buddhist rather than Russian Orthodox, for instance. Um, and we became very friendly with him. And his family had, uh, had quite a, a sort of tragic um, background in the sense that his Two parents were both Kalmyk revolutionaries uh, straight after the, the 1917 revolution. Um, there was all sorts of there were all sorts of revolutionary movements in the Caucasus, and they were both active Bol Bolsheviks. But then, during the late 1930s, uh, his father was put in in one of the Gulag camps um, under Stalin and, uh, you know, obviously hadn't hadn't had a good time, although he, he didn't die there. But I mean, uh, and that must have affected our friend Lev, although he never he never seemed bitter at all. I don't that was the funny thing. He, he, he just seemed to take it as a something that happened. And that was history. And that was that. And, and just get on with life. <laughs> He was lo a lovely bloke. He used to appear at our door with a bottle of vodka, <laughs> unannounced and <laughs> unplanned. And he, we didn't have the heart to say, look, you know, I'm, I'm really busy. I've got this feature to do for tomorrow or whatever. So he would come in and uh, we would all feel a bit worse, the wear, worse for wear the, the morning after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, how was it for your kids in terms of adaptation to you know, living in the Soviet Union. Did they know Russian at, at that point? Or not? No, no, not at all. Um, they, they, I think they accepted it as a, as an exciting challenge, you know, because for one thing, uh, Ricardo had already gone. He had a friend who, who worked in a place where they needed people to polish um, translations from Russian into Spanish to make them sound more Spanish. So they needed a native speaker. And Ricardo had a, a friend, a Chilean friend, who worked there. At, and so he um, started his work before I actually arrived in Moscow. So, of course, that was an added thing, that the children were dying to see their dad and really keen to go. And they never, I never 
bigged up the difficulties in learning Russian. I just thought they'll they'll get on with it. Just as I I learned Spanish in Chile, I didn't know a word of Spanish before I went. Um, but if you're thrown in the deep end, you well, if you've got any kind of uh, aptitude for languages, and and children always do actually, <laughs> you just learn it. So I, I was pretty sure that the kids would get on okay. But having spoken when I was writing this memoir, Twilight of the Soviet Union. Uh, I, I consulted my children and asked if they'd like to say anything or, you know, what they could remember of their school days. And all three of them said how dreadful it was on the first day when I took them because I just, I went in the case of the twins the, who were six at the time, nearly seven. I went into the classroom um, and uh, handed them over to the teacher uh, and practically immediately I just left. And they said that they felt really, really bereft, you know, because I'd just disappeared. And the same, my son said the same. I just, so I don't know, was I a very hard mum? I don't think so. <laughs> when I look back, I think, you know, it was it seemed a bit harsh to do that. I, I probably could have sat in or something, but probably nobody invited me to sit down. So I probably just thought, well, I, I better just let them let them have their first morning. Yeah, I don't. I can't think of any other better way of doing it because by sitting in, you sort of prolong it. Yes, it's a bit like leaving your kid at nursery here, isn't it? Lots of parents, you know, suffer at the beginning because the child cries or something, yeah. you know. And but in in a way, it is better to just leave them, even if you go back early. Because my wife's a teacher, and I think she always prefers just drop them off and go. Don't hang yes. around, and yes. we we know what we're doing, and we're we'll yeah. um, deal with it but this was obviously mm. a slightly different situation in so much they had no knowledge of the language no um, but it was it was a school which had some specialism in english uh, at that time there were spetschkole um they were called in different languages and there were also some that specialized in maths and specialized in sport for instance uh, they were not the majority of schools, but there were, you know, you, you could find uh, these special schools. But they were within the state system, of course. And so there were older children who spoke quite good English in the equivalent of our sixth form. Uh, and the teachers all had English. So at least they could communicate initially with um, with uh, certainly the teachers in the class that they were in, which was the very first year of school because ch the Soviet children started school at seven. Um, so they went in as the, f the, the, the normal uh, seven-year-old intake, our daughters, I mean. Um, and so they said that everybody was really, really friendly, you know, right from the beginning. And so did my, my son. He, he was nine at the time, or no, just 10. Um, and he said that everybody was very friendly and they made an effort to speak English to him. So he, he soon made friends and brought them to the house and we, we got to know his friends very well. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, 
and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Now, there's so many details that you've got in the book, and I really enjoyed that that pretty early on you describe sort of some of the absurdities of some of the bureaucracy you have to deal with where you're trying to get some dry cleaning done. Yes. <laughs> Still makes me laugh when I think of that. Uh, yes, it was once I went to take a Mac, an English Mac that I had, uh, Macintosh, to be dry cleaned. And uh, there were several people in the queue in front of me. And um, one girl I remember had, I don't know how many I think they were neck curtains from her place of work, 13 or something. And painstakingly, she was made to fill out a little um, piece of paper with uh, all the details about it and how many and all this. And then the, the receptionist at the dry cleaners had to do something. So it took forever. And there was a man in front of me and, and he in the queue. And he said, um, we're supposed to be changing all this you know we've got the resolution of the party congress that we should we should change things that are not working well at work you know he was sort of mumbling like that and the the girl behind the counter said um just leave everything as it is it's fine as it is (laughs) in a very sort of sullen way anyway when it came to my turn um i was told that i'd got to take off all the buttons and so I asked why, and she said, "Oh, they're foreign buttons. They'll they'll melt with our chemicals. They'll they'll melt." So that was a bit odd, I thought. But anyway, I <laughs> just accepted that. I don't know what else I could have done. And then she said, "I would have to tack the belt of the raincoat with cotton uh, needle and cotton to the bottom of the raincoat before handing it in, because otherwise it could get lost." So imagine I had to sit in that little shop and tack the the belt onto the bottom of the raincoat and then hand it in. So, I mean, altogether, it must have taken me, I don't know, at least half an hour, if not 45 minutes. I I really don't know at this stage how long it took, but a long time. And it just made me think, you know, this is absurd and that this can have gone on for probably decades and nobody sort of says, look, we've got to do things in a better way because apart from anything else, probably women had more of those sort of jobs than than men to do and plus doing their work outside the home plus doing a lot of the cooking and shopping um it was just uh, ridiculous because it, it meant that they if they were there they weren't um, doing their productive work at wherever they worked because most women did work i mean i, mean, I experienced some of that bureaucracy in eastern europe in the 1980s in poland and czechoslovakia things like if you're in a shop you paid got a receipt and then had to queue again to get mm. what you'd bought as well um yeah. and that was obviously something you know okay <laughs> some supermarkets were appearing then but it was still mm. very much an old style approach mind yes. you i seem to remember foils in london used to be a bit like that in terms of buying books but anyway um i digress since i recorded this i did check on foils which was a bookstore in charing cross road in london and they did operate a payment system that required customers to queue three times 
So you had to collect an invoice for a book, then pay the invoice, and then go and collect the book. And this was because the sales staff were not allowed to handle cash. So in 1980s London, you could get the full Moscow uh, purchasing experience on Charing Cross Road. At the time that we were there in the in the 80s, um, supermarkets for food were were appearing. And there were department stores, but department stores like like Gum or Ditskimir, the children's store, they all use that system of having to pay first and then go back. Um, so, but in the supermarkets, it was more like British uh, supermarkets, but there were few and far between. These old methods of working, I, I sometimes thought that maybe they were a hangover, hangover from a distant past, you know, and that people just hadn't, well, the system didn't foster uh, initiative in changing in changing ways of being those dry cleaners for instance would all have belonged to a nationwide system of dry cleaners and so they would all do the same thing i think whereas that that sort of thing like dry small dry cleaners in your local street you know in my opinion uh, there's nothing that's against socialism if they were run by an individual you know if they, they could have they could have been run quite efficiently, I think, and without going against the basic tenets of socialism. But I guess centralised control and the the fear of using initiative and getting, I don't know, disciplined for for doing it differently. Mm. Um, so now, w- within four days of you arriving, the uh, Soviet leader Konstantin Chernenko dies. Now he. So there's Brezhnev, Yuri Andropov, Konstantin Chernenko, and with the death of Chernenko, Mikhail Gorbachev comes yeah. in. What yeah. what impact did you see there with Mikhail Gorbachev and his um, arrival on the on the scene? Well, it was pretty immediate, really. Um, for a start, instead of television simply showing some formal meeting. Uh, and it was painful to see Chernyenko sort of propped up on either side, um, standing at some meeting behind the platform, for instance. Uh, in the case of Gorbachev, straight away, television showed him, I can remember, on his first visit to Leningrad, which was just weeks into his uh, general secretaryship, uh, which is the position he held at that time, the general secretary of the Communist Party, which was the ruling party. Um surrounded by people in the street. You know, you never saw that before. Even even with Andropov, I don't think he had that habit of going into the street and people milling around and asking him questions and saying things and him asking the, the public things. You know, it was it was refreshing. It really was. And you saw early in 1985 that there was a huge groundswell of optimism and, and um, welcome for somebody new, somebody with new ideas, somebody who had a refreshing attitude towards uh, ordinary people in the street. So I think people really did welcome the changes that uh, Gorbachev started to bring in right from early 1985. It would be later that they became disillusioned. One of those early things he brings in, he's not hugely popular though, the anti-alcohol campaign. That's right. That's uh, looking back. I mean, he himself, as I put in the book, I think, um, years later, 30 years later, said that it should not have been done uh, as it was by an axe to the head, as he put it. Um, 
it should have been done more gradually. And obviously that's so. And I, I do feel that it was a, an extreme measure. Of course, people tell me, although I wasn't there at the time, that during the Brezhnev years, which lasted a long time, was it 17 or 20 years, I can't remember, uh, standards at work and discipline at work became very lax. I can remember my neighbour telling me that they'd had um, uh, one of the lifts in the building had had to be replaced and uh, it took you know months and months for the thing to be finished. And she said there was a lot of, um, uh, well, people arriving drunk at work or slipping out halfway through the day and, and drinking and then coming back or not coming back, you know, that sort of thing. Discipline, pretty weak. So Andropov tried to deal with that and did deal with that, but he was there for sh such a short time. People had a good opinion of Andropov. They, they really felt that everybody I spoke to about Andropov was very uh, sort of full of praise for what he managed to do in his short time. So I think that was the reason for Gorbachev doing it, um, to try and uh, impose work discipline um, to improve productivity and to also help the health of the nation because vodka is a, obviously it's a spirit. It's, it's not even like drinking wine. You know, it's um, much more dangerous for, for health to drink vodka if you start during the day. <laughs> you can imagine the state that uh, people are in and, and it affected a lot of men drank vodka rather than more than women. So there's a lot of uh, heavy drinking, which is not good for any society. That was the reason for it. But could it have been done differently? I certainly think, for instance, that it was a big mistake to lump all alcohol, alcoholic drinks together because you've, you had the wine drinking cultures of Moldavia, of, uh, of Georgia uh, in the Caucasus. You know, they, they, are, they have the same sort of culture as people in Chile. They drink wine with meals, but they don't get drunk on it. They, they you know, it's, it's sort of a more civilized drinking, if you like. And yet they were ordered to uproot uh, ancient vines. It, it was madness. It was it was all, it was 100%. It couldn't be just be done, you know, 50 or 60%. It had to be 100%, right, taking off all these, these vineyards. And, of course, that caused enormous resentment in those republics because they were, as I say, they were wine-drinking peoples. That that is one of the things that people sometimes aren't necessarily aware of is the number of republics and the nationalities and the different cultures that there were within the Soviet Union. It's it's sometimes viewed as this homogenous country where everybody speaks Russian, but as you said, with your um your neighbour in in your flats, there were a vast number of these different nationalities within the Soviet Union. Did you did you visit a lot of the republics during your time there? Yes. I, I went to, I think, every one except uh, Kyrgyzia. I, I didn't manage to, to go there for some reason. <laughs> but uh, I went to all the Central Asian ones apart from that and all the Caucasian ones and all the Baltic ones. Um, I, I think that was one of the things I liked most about uh, living in in Moscow and working for the Morning Star, the opportunity that it afforded me to go to far-flung places in the Soviet Union and to realize just what kind of a, a multinational, multi-ethnic country it was. And that's why I was so uh, 
upset and disappointed later when um, inter-ethnic problems uh, started to surface. But before talking about that, I would say that um, it was very interesting to go to places where, for instance, in Central Asia, where I knew that before the revolution, you know, um, women wore the veil and uh, were expected to just uh, be housewives and didn't work outside the home and uh, didn't have the rights that men had. Um, in some places, you know, men had the right to have more than one wife and all that sort of thing before the revolution. And I knew that after the revolution and after the civil war, when the, the Red Army won, um, that those countries uh, which incorporated into the Soviet Union started to have the same rights as women every, everywhere in the Soviet Union. And it was wonderful for me to see um, and to meet women who um, were you know, at the top of their professions as engineers or as nuclear physicists or as politicians, as writers um, in those republics, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, Turkmenistan. And I was impressed, you know, by that. And one of the things that most impressed me was the fact that people were so bilingual everywhere. You know, they, it wasn't that Russian was imposed to the to the exclusion of the local language. no. They spoke their local language and you could hear it in the streets and you could see it in the newspapers because all the newspapers and books were in both languages. I mean, not in the same edition, but you could find books in the local language and books in, in Russian. Um, and everybody seemed, everybody that I met seemed to speak good Russian and also be fluent in their own language, which, you know, I thought was, uh, well, it's, it's like in lots of Welsh homes, isn't it, in, in Britain? Lots of Welsh people speak Welsh and and English and perfectly well. I was I always felt that the Western journalists who used to go on about Russification, I always felt that was very unfair because it seemed to me that it Russification did not exist. Russian existed as a language and Russian literature, but also the local literatures of ancient poets, for instance, or modern poets in those countries in those republics were translated into Russian so that people in Russia and in the north, for instance, they could get an idea of, say, Tajik literature or uh, Kyrgyz literature. And in fact, one of the famous writers in the Soviet Union was Chingis Agmatov, who has been translated, some of his books have been translated into English, I think. And he was uh, Kyrgyz. And he was well known because people in Russia who didn't speak you know, his language, uh, could read that literature in Russian. So I, I found that very impressive, even in Kazakhstan, where in Karaganda, which is a, a mining area uh, in Kazakhstan, I went to um, a publishing house which was called Freundschaft, um, which in English means friendship, and that was it all in German, and you could find that on, in the kiosks. Uh, I think it was a weekly paper. Uh, and there were books in German as well. So, and I met a German-speaking miner, um, tall and blonde, I remember, and um, asked him about his life and and whether his children spoke German. And he said, "Well, no, because he had married a Kazakh woman, I think it was." Um, and you know, they they they, I think probably to have introduced German as a third language might have been a bit much on top of Russian and Kazakh. Um, but uh, it was still a thriving language. And, and 
it seemed to me that the state actually put in quite a lot of resources in keeping up those all those languages because it's it's not not every country that um, publishes literature from all over the place in several different languages yeah and the the soviet union was pretty strong on on culture and uh, uh making that accessible to the population as well that's very true. I, I can remember going to the Bolshoi Theatre to to see some ballet, and very often you would see a whole area in the stalls uh, of people who were from one particular place or one particular factory. I once got talking to somebody from the group, and they had reserved seats. You know, the, through their factory, they could buy uh, concert tickets for that particular performance, and they would all go together, in, and they were in the best seats. Um, so that was that was certainly true that um, culture was very accessible. There were everywhere you went. There was a Dom Culturi, which is a sort of cultural arts center, if you like, where they frequently had dances and uh, concerts and choirs and all sorts of uh, things went on, as well as um, clubs like chess clubs and sports and all sorts of things went on in different. Uh, I think in that sense, the, the, the Soviet Union was um, was good. And another impressive thing uh, was when you went to a factory and you met workers, sometimes you would have the chance to have a cup of tea with them or meet them after the shift. And I would be impressed by their knowledge of English literature. You know, they would know writers like... Um, like uh, Graham Greene or you know um, Iris Murdoch, and he, and they they would actually have read in Russian works not only of Shakespeare and um, Mrs. Gaskell and nineteenth-century <laughs> authors, but present-day ones too. Um, I think reading was very very popular in the Soviet Union. People were, on the whole, pretty well read. Um, and a new foreign literature much, much better than we know, or I say we, I mean, most English British people probably know uh, Russian literature. I belong to a book club, and I once suggested that we read uh, Anna Karenina, and uh, none of them had read any Russian literature or Soviet literature whatsoever. Wow. I can't say I've read a huge amount, but I can definitely say that I've read uh, And Quiet Flows the Dom. I remember reading Yes, Solokhov. Yes. Um, some others which have slipped my memory now. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, now, that's good. <laughs> we, we can't talk about Gorbachev without obviously talking about Glasnost and Perestroika, the the two key sound not soundbite is wrong, but the 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 two key words or terms that he sort of hung his uh, policies on. Can you just explain to me what those meant? on the ground in the factories and and with with the population how how did they how did gorbachev try and change things for the better in the soviet union it's a big that's a big question i know yes yes i think initially it was uh, welcomed by the majority of the population obviously um people knew about uh, khrushchev's denunciation of Stalinism uh, in the secret speech, you know, of the uh, uh, the Communist Party Conference, co Congress, and they knew that there had been um, 
things that they hadn't known. So, you know, that that was Khrushchev's uh, part in glasnost. Glasnost simply means bringing things out into the open, uh, being open. And um, I think that they saw it in, in two ways. First of all, in, in terms of culture, books and plays and films that uh, had been shelved by the censors, they had not been performed at the time that the, the writers had written them. And when they started to appear from 1986 onwards, there was a welcome for that because people wanted to know, <laughs> if you like, why things had, had been sat on and, and had been put on the shelf and not allowed. People wanted to to hear and see different uh, things, like, for instance, um, the film that I mentioned by the Latvian filmmaker, Podniks, um, Is It Easy to Be Young?, where he, for the first time, uh, revealed all sorts of problems like prostitution and drunkenness and uh, drugs and so on, uh, which, you know, had certainly not been shown before that film. I think it was welcomed in that sense. And then in the sense of, in terms of work, I think uh, Glasnost meant the ability to um, to talk about problems more openly, problems with uh, their work. Uh, for instance, things like, I remember uh, a loom operator in one of the Central Asian republics who told me in the factory that was mainly manned by or womaned by women, um, that the looms were all of one height. And, you know, she had said that the, they'd been complaining for years that the looms were not really suitable for most women who were, you know, below five foot six or something. Um, and yet it had never managed to be changed because the central planning system was such that uh, the looms just kept on being produced, uh, whether changes were needed or not. So glasnost in that sense meant that, you know, there could be much more pressure put on managements and on and in the newspapers and, and letters and so on uh, to bring all these problems out into the open. There had always been criticism. I mean, I can remember in when I was there in 1981, reading the papers, um, you know, being quite surprised by how many critical letters there were. So I think it, it's wrong to think that there were there, there wasn't criticism. There was. Uh, it, the question is whether there was the, the sort of mechanism to put things right. There were in some places, but obviously not completely nationally. Otherwise, it wouldn't have. Uh, well, I, th I think it, the system didn't foster being able to put those problems right. Put it that way. There's a, a lot of vested interests who don't want change to come in uh, some of those organisations. Probably probably vested interests exist here as well, I suppose, you know, in, in big organisations. Absolutely. And in, uh, yeah, it's, it is something that has to be combated, really. As for perestroika, perestroika sort of started to mean the wholesale kind of restructuring of uh, society uh, was hard to grasp exactly what it meant at the beginning. Um, but it was clear from, especially from sort of 1986 onwards, um, that it meant changing the whole system of the Supreme Soviets and the parliamentary system, um, changing uh, the way that factories ran and whether they should 
whether ministries should continue having the power that they did or whether should, there should be changes in the ministerial structure. Ministries had inordinate power, really, it seems to me, in those years and often um, interfered more than helped industries or individual factories and plants. And I think, again, people were happy with uh, all the, the new things that were going on. But from about 19, I would say, 1987, the end of 1987 onwards, there, there be, became a sort of more feeling of uh, annoyance that there was an awful lot of talk about restructuring everything, but nothing was changing on the ground, really. Uh, and one of our economist friends um, pointed that out as a danger because they, he said, unless there are going to be some real changes in the economy and people are going to start seeing the things that are sh uh, shortages at the moment appear in the shops, then people are just going to say that it's just so much hot air and, and they're not going to go along with it. And I think that is what happened gradually from, I would say, from about the end of 1987 onwards. People started to feel that all this glassless and perestroika was all very well, but they weren't seeing any, any results from it. And the frustration that I felt going around quite a lot of works and, and plants and factories in different places of, of the Soviet Union, both in Moscow, in Leningrad, and in all sorts of other places, Ariol. Um, there were experiments which had been set up since 1983, for instance, uh, um, experiments to try and make uh, an increase, in, to, to try and increase productivity, um, whereby a factory had to be self-sufficient, had to be self-financing, instead of all the time getting a certain amount, like a grant from the state planning committee, they had to be profitable, um, which didn't contradict with Lenin's writings, for instance, on, uh, on, on industry needing to be profitable. In the early days, it was seen as something necessary that each place should, run a, uh, should turn a profit. But it had become accepted that, I try to explain this in the book, that a, a factory could produce could achieve its norm handed down by the state planning committee say the state planning committee says that in this five-year plan you must produce a million tractors or whatever as long as that factory churned out that number of tractors or whatever um, they continued to exist even though they might not be actually profitable and so in these experiments like the one in Sumy in Ukraine, which I mentioned um, in the book, the, the fact that they were profitable meant that the profits were simply used to prop up all those unprofitable enterprises. So, you know, it was inefficient, obviously. So they could be producing tractors and filling that, fulfilling those norms, but nobody wants to buy them. Yeah. And in which case the state's having to uh, then subsidise them. To keep that's right. It's a way of subsidising. That's right. Yeah. So if it seems to me that they, what what should have been done was would would have been to increase the number of those sort of uh, enterprises that were under the experiments instead of them being in an isolated uh, place, you know, in one city, to introduce them, you know, much more widely and see how that went first before starting to reorganise the whole 
a whole system. Obviously, one of the differences with the Soviet Union versus um, the West during this period is the security of employment. So therefore, if you start insisting that a factory has to be profitable, you might have people who then don't have a job, I guess. Yes, it's possible, although uh, because of the shortage of labor actually which had existed right since the end of the second world war when so many men were killed among the 27 million that the soviet union lost in the second world war you know that that um, lack of uh, manpower still existed so i think in most uh, places you know they could have been found they would have been found employment but yes i mean the the security aspect of uh, socialist society in the Soviet Union was certainly very important to people. Um, but they didn't know that a different society would not afford them that kind of security. For instance, you know, very, very cheap housing, energy. I mean, education was free. Healthcare was free. You know, paid holidays. Food, food prices were low. And all the cultural things that we've mentioned were very cheap. Books were cheap. Theatre was cheap. Um, all those aspects were valued, but I don't think Soviet people thought that they would be different in any, any other society. Um, <laughs> they, they didn't have the knowledge of other societies to know that, uh, in, in, for instance, in, in developed capitalist societies, people pay an awful big proportion of their income on, on housing, for instance. I just wanted to talk about some of the events that you covered in your reporting. One of the ones I particularly want to ask you about is the Chernobyl disaster, because you were amongst the first group of journalists to visit the area after the yes. uh, reactors exploded. What was that experience like? Well, it was interesting, of course. It was, uh, on a personal level, it was a bit um, daunting, um, I can remember a friend saying to me, if it were me, I wouldn't go. Um, but I, I felt I had to go. Um, and, um, first of all, I was, I was, obviously it was a terrible accident. Um, but I was very impressed by all the people that we met who were doing the so-called liquidation, they were called liquidators, people who were doing just two-hour shifts on, you know, in the most radiated, irradiated uh, parts of the power plant, uh, were only allowed to work there for very short times, obviously, with all their uh, anti-contamination gear. Um, they, they really did seem like heroes, you know, they just had that attitude that you just had to get on with it. It had been a terrible accident, uh, but accidents happened, and they all thought of just a national need, um, a sort of essential duty to your country and to the people of that whole area was to clean up as quickly as possible, and they just got on with it. Um, as I say, that the men that we spoke to, in um, they were often housed in pioneer camps or in... Uh, rest homes or holiday homes um, nearby you know so after they'd finished their shift they would be doused down and then they would be um, be free to, to to have a couple of days off or whatever it was i can't remember now how it worked but they they did short shifts and then had a rest but they they were very impressive um but it was 
it was a strange trip in some ways. Uh, I remember one of the things we met all sorts of local officials and I was, again, I was fairly impressed really by the speedy evacuation of citizens from the nearest place, Pripyat, because um, they were, within a question of hours, they were all evacuated with animals and everything uh, from that town. So that, that seemed really good. But on the other hand, <laughs> as this group of journalists was just, as, I say, as you said, was the first group uh, allowed just to the edge of the um, zone that was considered the most dangerous, the dangerous zone uh, around the nuclear power plant. Um, we were taken to have lunch in, in a wood. Um, and although the table was covered with cloths, you know, uh, we actually ate when the tables were uncovered. We actually ate a delicious lunch, but in the open air. And it just seemed, well, looking back, it just seemed madness, you know, to, to do that when there was radiation around. I mean, you can't, you can't get rid, rid of, um, of radiation that's already in the air. I mean, they said it, you know, they said it was safe um, and they showed, we had Geiger counters and all that sort of thing. But uh, it just seemed a bit, um, bit strange to me. I think there was, a dis obviously, <laughs> Glasnost was already beginning. So, Although it wasn't reported immediately, you know, the very first night uh, on Soviet television, it was reported quite fully after that. Um, but local officials, you know, in April 1986, were still not that used to, to glasnost. Uh, Gorbachev had only been in, in, in that position for just over a year, so it was still fairly recent. And so I think probably their attitude was that for foreigners, you know, it would be better to... Um, to just give them lots of meetings with different people who were doing the cleanup and uh, who were in political positions at the time um, and not bother too much about whether it was safe to have lunch in the open air. Yeah. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more, or follow the link in the episode information. You visited some incredible places like the uh, uh, Semipalatinsk uh, nuclear testing site was, was one location. Ooh. Was that because of the Morning Star um and um its um political stance you you had access to areas that other western journalists wouldn't have had access to well yes uh that area had been a closed town kuchatov had been a closed town before gorbachev's uh, coming to power um but the morning the morning star had always 
spent a lot of time and and uh, did a lot of work on the peace question. You know, supporting CND, uh, we've always had a lot to do with uh, the peace movement in in Britain, and um, obviously these were the years when there were cruise missiles facing the Soviet Union, uh, and um, you know the the era of detente had uh, had disappeared. And it was a full-scale Cold War. And the Soviet Union, under Gorbachev, announced this moratorium on underground nuclear testing. There had already been a test ban treaty for um, tests in the atmosphere, but tests were still being held underground. And so we were, I was uh, in this group, but together with um, the Reuters, uh, head of the Reuters Bureau, Bob Evans, he went with me and other Western journalists were on that trip as well. Uh, and we actually saw uh, and went into the tunnel that was the next one that would be used for an underground test if the moratorium were not prolonged. As it happened, um, the Soviet Union did prolong its moratorium uh, three times, I think, but the United States did not. And in fact, we met a couple of Americans on that trip who were there as research scientists and um, meeting their fellow research scientists and who said that the two Soviet scientists were supposed to go to America, but because the Americans said they would be allowed to witness an underground test in Nevada, in the in the United States, the Soviet side said, "No, we're not. If we've got a moratorium, we're not going to send our scientists there to witness your underground test. You know, it's just absolutely ridiculous." So they wouldn't do it. They didn't go. But that was a an interesting trip for all sorts of reasons. Um, the the tunnel that we we saw it was in the Degelin Hills, and all around there were hills, and we were in the bottom. The tunnel was in the bottom of the valley. And the hills all around had these really strange, big, enormous, strange-looking rocks. Strange because unlike most rocks, which are weathered by rain and snow and, and have soft, um, curved edges, these were all sort of jagged edges, really strange-looking rocks. And that was a result of underground tests that had been carried out in that area before. And it just, it just I've always been if not a pacifist, I've always been very strongly against nuclear weapons and, um, and, and well, against war in general. Um, and I had, during the time that uh, I lived there, I met a Japanese survivor of uh, one of the atomic bombs that the American government unleashed on uh, Hiroshima. He was from Hiroshima. He'd been a, he was a soldier at the time, and he had the job together with other conscripts of crossing the city and doing going to some other place on the other side of the city. And so he saw all these people with you know skin hanging from their bodies, uh, having lost their eyes, people desperately jumping into the the river to try and to try and get rid of the burning. You know. It, it, People, it was it was such a terrible, um, terrible, terrible thing. So many thousands of people. So I was very much against nuclear weapons, and uh, 
to see these strange rocks and to realize that uh, you know testing could resume if the Americans didn't uh, go along with the moratorium in, uh, that the Soviet Union had announced, you know this could be at some stage in the future it could happen and uh, so I it just was a very sobering in that sense it was a very sobering trip. Um, some of the other people that that you met were I mean one of the ones that leapt out and there's so many great vignettes within this book about the visits that you make and who you speak to and and what what you hear we're just scratching the surface here but one of the ones i just did want to pick out was uh maria kudnetsova i think is how it's pronounced and she joined the bolsheviks in 1917 aged 17 and and you spoke to her i mean that must have been a fascinating insight into the start of the Bolshevik Revolution. Yes, she was the one from Saratov, wasn't she? Was yes. she? I think yes. I, I was very fortunate that my husband had the foresight to bring back all the telexes that of my uh, reports that I filed as a journalist all those nearly six years. Um, so he he he, I had come back to Britain to work on the. Uh, Second Russian Revolution television series with Norma Percy, um, but my husband stayed behind, and so he, as I say, had the foresight to bring back all the telexes that I had left there in the flat, and uh, so I was able to recount these stories in my book because I had filed on those for the Morning Star, so they, they were there in black and white. Because I wouldn't have been able to remember everything you know, of individual interviews like the one I did with Maria Kuznetsova, um, if if I hadn't been able to remember them by rereading all these telexes, which I've now got in boxes in, in one of the bedrooms here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, she had, she related how she'd been, uh, she was a 12-year-old who had to leave her family and work as a servant in a, a richer family's house and how they treated her quite badly and she had to carry big sacks of heavy sacks here and there and um you know had a, a generally hard life and so she joined the bolsheviks as a as a teenager and uh, did things like painting slogans and uh, running errands for for the bolsheviks and uh, was able to r- relate a particular battle in the streets where the whites uh, in during the civil war, the the whites in that area in Saratov had uh, tried to storm a building, and the red red army people had uh, actually fought against them. And um, she was slightly slightly wounded, I think, if I remember rightly, uh, in that. So she had always been a supporter of the Bolsheviks right since then. I'm I'm not sure if her father was as well. I, I can't remember now. But yeah, it was interesting to talk to to her, and um, she was. She, we didn't talk much about uh, Perestroika and Glasnost and how she felt about that, but she was certainly very fervently uh, a member of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. She was very much so. How did the British Embassy view you? Uh, how was your know. relationship you... with the British Embassy? <laughs> Well, I think they were probably quite suspicious of me, really, um, because of the fact that I, I worked for the Morning Star. Um, I 
I had on the surface, I had good relations with everybody. I mean, I'm a very, um, you know, I'm not somebody who ever makes enemies. I, I have good friends among uh, some of the other journalists. You know, I still keep up friendships with several people from that era, British journalists. And um, so I think people among the journalists, I felt quite well respected, actually. Um, which as it is a, as it should be because I, I was a very active journalist and I, I spoke good Russian and I could I could ask questions at press conferences which you know in Russian which um, probably impressed them a bit I don't know because uh, I thought it was very strange that the, that there would be British correspondence in such a major city at such a major time such a, an important impactful time that they would send journalists who didn't speak the language but it seemed to be almost um, de rigueur that you would have journalists who, who didn't didn't speak the language and they didn't think it necessary. And that was stated quite uh, definitely by a BBC radio journalist who who said, well, even even if you spoke to people on the street, they would just give you the Pravda line, Pravda being the, the Communist Party newspaper. So they wouldn't say anything different, which I thought was a really crass thing to say because if you spoke to Soviet people in their own language you could find all sorts of different opinions you know they were not at all all saying the same thing you know mm. <laughs> there were just as many different opinions about things as as you probably find here but having said that they were in general uh, in the in the early eight in the mid 80s anyway were, were very supportive of their government really I would say. Um, the embassy sort of invited me to some things. Then there were other times when uh, I think I relate in the in, in the book how on one occasion um, the previous ambassador, the first ambassador that, that was there when I was there, uh, who was later replaced by one that I, I had much more time for. Um, but this, this first one that I'd met... Um, had excluded or hadn't invited me to some uh, press briefing. And um, apparently, I learned from one of the other British journalists later, had asked the journalists there at this press briefing at the embassy whether they should open up the press, press briefings. And so one of the journalists said, well, what do you mean open up? Uh, and he made some sort of non-committal reply. And, and so then another journalist said, do you mean Kate? And he sort of rather shamefacedly apparently said, yes, you know, should we invite her? Uh, which just shows, you know, when you think that I was there representing a paper that's a national newspaper, it may be small, but it's a national newspaper. It's produced six days a week and was at that time as well. It's not just a weekly or a fortnightly, it's a daily paper. Uh, and yet there could be a question of, as to whether I was invited to a, a press briefing at the embassy. So I was sort of definitely held at uh, arm's length in that sense. Did you ever get the impression that the Soviet security services were, were watching where you were going or, or were monitoring you or not? Well, um, it's difficult to know, isn't it, Who's, who, are, who are secret service people and who aren't. Um, I don't I never I never felt <laughs> I never really felt that I was being. Uh, watched or, or, or sort of controlled in any way. There was ne there were never any kind of. At most, there might be a suggestion, you know, that it would be good to cover such and such a thing, like 
you know, I remember somebody said uh, it would be nice to to cover a trip to Star City where Gagarin and you know the the other space uh, people train, where Helen Sharman, who was the the first British person in in space, um, where she had trained, that was suggested to me, but not just you know, and I I don't rem- I don't feel that I was con- I was um, controlled in any way or, or followed or maybe I I mean any secret service of any country there's a lot of phone tapping and all that sort of thing uh, I'm sure that probably went on but um, it's nothing that worried me or, or kind of uh, affected my work in any way I wrote what I wanted the Morning Star didn't always publish it um, but that also happens to journalists, as I discovered from other, you know, talking to other journalists. It, I wasn't the only one who sometimes. Well, um, I, th- I think you talk about the the challenges of, you know, perhaps a lot of the stuff that you're picking up and reporting on is critical of yeah. the Soviet Union in 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 terms of you know practices and and things like that. Whereas back in uh, you know, Morning Star headquarters. There may be people there who don't want the Soviet Union reflected in a poor light, and that you've got yes. the challenges there of those conflicting opinions. So, I think there was a reluctance in uh, the Morning Star um, to to report or to to put in its pages all the reports that I was sending, which were simply reports about the negative things that were being brought out under the system of glasnost in the soviet press and in on press in press conferences and so on because obviously if the morning star had been before 1985 had been talking about socialism as mainly you know overall positive it was difficult then to start talking about all the defects that gorbachev was highlighting in the late 1980s in the second half of the 80s. So um, I sent over what was being reported in the Soviet Union, but they didn't always, in in the Morning Star office, they didn't always publish it. But they published a a good deal. You know, it was... uh, I don't think I can really say that they didn't publish. there There were times when I felt frustrated because I'd perhaps put in quite a lot of work, you know, to 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 do a feature on something and and uh, i think in general my features were were published uh, i think there was only once or twice that it it, it might have uh, happened that it wasn't but uh, quite uh, quite often daily reports were were minimized or you know parts of them were cut out or something like that but that's also a, a function of lack of space in a paper like the morning star which is not a big paper I was in, interested to see that you visited Afghanistan in May '88. What, what was Afghanistan like in that period? Well, um, I was only in Kabul. Um, it struck me as a a very beautiful city. Actually, I mean, Kabul could be a beautiful city. You look out on all these snow-capped mountains round about, and uh, the people themselves are sort of a good-looking people, really. Um, but a lot of poverty, a lot of um, a lot of poverty, a lot of uh, actions by the Mujahideen at that time who were being supported and financed by the West, by America principally. Um, 
And so there was, you know, the fight was going on. The Afghan security forces, which were being trained and helped by the Russians who were there, um, against the Mujahideen who had got the latest weaponry and were firing rockets from the hillsides. So it was, uh, it's a war-torn country. You know, it's, uh, it was, um, I felt that Najibullah, who was the leader at that time and who had started this policy of nas- national reconciliation, um, that that was a very wise policy and it was having some success because it had already agreed that Afghanistan should be uh, in the constitution, it should be called an Islamic state. Uh, it was rolling back on uh, the role of the mullahs, um, you know, that so there was fewer and fewer reasons why people, the ordinary Afghan people would be against it. Um, and the idea was that it would be national reconciliation, that, that these different groups, the religious groups, the um, some some of whom were Islamic fundamentalists wouldn't be uh, wouldn't have the reason to a reason to be against the government. And as I say, it seemed to me that they were having some success. But obviously, if if you finance um, a section of the population that is against that, uh, and you're giving them weapons, and the war continues, it um, it's not easy to foster. Uh, that that policy, but I found Najibullah. I only met him once at this press conference, but I felt that he was uh, uh, quite an impressive figure and knew where he was going and and wanted, you know, the best for Afghanistan, which it sorely needed because uh, there was so little industry. The poppies were the only thing that, that were being grown by the farmers. You know, you needed to provide a policy which would enable people to live in in a decent way to to farm different crops not not heroin not uh, poppies to make heroin um and to set up industries and to uh, get children into school because so many children not just girls but uh, boys as well from early age just had to work you know carrying this and or begging in the streets to help their their parents and it's a very very poor country it was a very poor country and, um, you know, mistakes were obviously made originally when this uh, so-called De- Democratic Party of Afghanistan was set up uh, under um, Babrak Kamal. You know, there were mistakes made calling it a, a socialist country or, you know, going too much too far, too fast, uh, when it didn't have the support of um, significant parts of the population. So that that caused a reaction, obviously, uh, by the mullahs who are very who were very powerful in Afghanistan and uh, if you read novels you know like um is it the kite the kite the maker kite, kite runner oh kite runner yeah i mean you know that talks about the role of the mullahs and how important to you know how how uh, stultifying that role was so I think it was very difficult, basically, for Najibullah to introduce a policy which was a very sensible policy of national reconciliation, but it wasn't allowed to continue. And his fate, of course, was a, a terrible one in being killed and tortured when he took refuge in, in the United Nations um, building. Were you 
surprised that the whole structure of the Soviet Union fell apart so quickly? Well, I wasn't. I wasn't surprised. Uh, I would have been if you'd asked me that in in 1985. I would have been amazed. Uh, but the more that I observed what was going on uh, with all these uh, extreme uh, extreme negativity in the press and uh, in speeches and so on, it was as if absolutely everything negative in society was being broadcast and repeatedly so and everything that could be considered contentious or or um, negative in in the history uh, for instance the stalin's unpreparedness uh, to uh, the beginning of the second world war in June 1941, uh, you know, that he wasn't prepared and all, all the historic role of uh, the Red Army and so on. Um, everything, everything was uh, was was reported in a very negative way. And I began to, really from 1988, certainly beginning of 88 onwards, I started to feel that all balance was being lost. All balance was, you know, in reporting. And I, I, I was quite critical of the newspaper editors and because I felt that it was glassness can be a good thing but if it's only negative that you're talking about then it's not going to be it could be destabilizing and I think it was destabilizing and I think people started to ordinary people started to think that everything was actually wrong because all this was coming from the top if you like it wasn't coming as a a surge from the working people upwards. It was the opposite way around. It was all coming from Gorbachev and the leadership down that everything was uh, was negative. I just started to fear for the whole structure of, of the Soviet Union, and uh, that just went went on. And I, I did. I wasn't surprised in the end. No. In nineteen ninety one, there's a referendum on the future of the Soviet Union. Over 80% of the Soviet adult population, that's 148 million people, took part in the referendum. And apart from six republics, Armenia, Georgia, Moldova and the Baltic republics, it appears there's a large majority in favour of the Soviet Union continuing. Yeah. Well, this is something that was not mentioned in the West at all and still isn't really. It's uh, it's quite uh, telling (laughs) that you don't hear about this. But yes, I mean, I've got the um, the uh, breakdown of all the different republics, both the um, constituent republics, the 15 constituent republics, and also the uh, autonomous republics um, that we don't know much about in the West um, by percentage. And, um, you know, the overall one was 80 percent turnout. Uh, there was a, an 80 percent turnout and 78 percent were in favor of keeping the Soviet Union. And the only republics that didn't take part were the Baltics, Moldavia and Georgia, I think. Um, So it was, you know, pretty, it was certainly by population, the vast mass of the Soviet people did, or Soviet Union peoples, did want to continue. They they didn't at all want the country to break up. But it broke up because Yeltsin, I think, I think he was a power seeker, really. I think he he was a power seeker, and he saw that 
he could have supreme power as Russian president, and Russia is the main republic, it's the main one that's got, it's got the most resources and so on, and that would be enough. Uh, he'd rather be president of Russia than try to keep the federation together, even as a renewed federation. And so he, together with the Belarus and the Ukrainian leaders, just... Um, met and decided that that was the end of the Soviet Union. And because Gorbachev by then was severely weakened and the Soviet party, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, had uh, lost its um, lost its way under Gorbachev, I think, <laughs> uh, that, that was uh, the end of the Soviet Union as such. It's interesting that, you know, although... People, a lot of people, uh, you could say, I think I mentioned before that a lot of people who were used to all the security in the Soviet Union didn't actually realize that in a different capitalist society, they wouldn't have all that security. Um, I can remember Ricardo telling me that he'd argued with people, uh, you know, about uh, the healthcare system. Would they, would, would they realize that, you know, if, if they had an out-and-out -out capitalist system, they probably wouldn't they wouldn't keep free healthcare. And people said, oh, no, you know, everybody has free healthcare everywhere in the world, etc. I think a society should give security to its citizens. There should be uh, affordable housing and all those things which sometimes are, are ignored as if they weren't also a human right. But it seems to me that they are part of human rights as well. Why shouldn't people have a security in, in a job, in, in their housing, in healthcare and all that? Kate's book is called Twilight of the Soviet Union, Memoirs of a Moscow Correspondent. It's published by Bannister and there's links in the episode notes for you to purchase the book. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information